So this evening, our 11th evening at the retreat, (laughs) I want to focus uh, especially on how we deepen our inquiry and investigation into the judgmental mind and get closer to the roots of particularly our more regular or chronic judgments and how we transform the judgmental mind. And I'll be presenting a model of four steps or four stages in the transformation of the judgmental mind. And this is particularly, again, connected with the inquiry, investigation, mindfulness mode of transformation. There's also the (coughs) mode of transformation using the heart practices, that more uh, developing uh, beautiful qualities of our being, awakened qualities, wonderful Brahma Vihara and so forth. So I'll be focusing especially on the first mode. Both modes are important and I think necessary. (coughs) So first, A dialogue. This is a dialogue I had uh, probably about eight or nine years ago with uh, Sky Cushman, who is the son of Anne Cushman, who teaches here a lot. Some of you know Anne, Uh, author, teacher of yoga, teacher of meditation. And we were um, teaching much like here Um, in different retreats, but at the same time. So we would often have meals. And Skye was nine at the time, and he was very intrigued by the theme of the judgmental mind. (laughs) And the following is a dialogue that we had, short dialogue, that I uh, wrote down shortly thereafter. Thus I have heard. Skye. We need to have the judgmental police lock up all the judgmental people. (laughs) Donald, who polices the judgmental police? Sky, themselves. They lock up the judgmental, judgmental police. Donald, so they have to be pretty mature, huh? Sky, yes. That's it. (laughs) Okay. And then a second kind of introduction to the evening is a cartoon. This is a cartoon about a possible one-stage model for transforming the judgmental mind. And it shows a patient in a hospital bed. And there's a man with a surgeon's cap on who's talking to him. And he says, uh, congratulations, Mr. Meguin. We've, we've successfully removed your inner critic. <laughs> that style of surgery has unfortunately not been replicated. And so we have a much slower four-stage model. And actually it's not as simple as a surgery and a short visit to the hospital. I think you know that by now, right? So I'll get to the four-stage model just in a few moments, but I wanted to set the context a little bit by talking about a theme which we haven't addressed uh, directly. I think it's come up in some of the groups. And this is the question of how the work we're doing here relates to traditional Buddhist practice and the traditional path of awakening. It's a question you may have had. Uh, And it's an important question. 
And, you know, the, in the traditional path, there are different ways of talking about it, but one way is similar to elements that we've developed here, that there's, in some approaches, there is a development of shamatha meditation, which is the settling and stabilizing of the mind, of attention, the becoming less distracted so we can actually look deeply at experience. That's one of the major forms of Buddhist meditation. And then when that's there, there's the possibility of insight practice, of looking deeply at experience in a way which is freeing. Like that phrase I gave, I think two nights ago, maybe maybe earlier, uh, uh, seeing that frees. It's a very nice name for insight practice. Really for mindfulness practice sounds a little bit mundane, but actually the aim is seeing that freeze. We're not just, you know, being mindful of an itch for the sake of being mindful of an itch, but rather the practice points towards freedom and liberation. And traditionally, the insight practice pointed I would say, towards four major kinds of insights. The first three were understood in terms of what are sometimes called the three characteristics. Uh, Impermanence, uh, dukkha, sometimes translated as suffering, and then uh, anatta, or not-self, which is the, the most mysterious of the three. And the liberating insight comes into those three. I'll I'll talk about each of them in a moment. And then the fourth area of insight is insight or the experience of Nibbana, of the unconditioned, which is said to give on first glimpse uh, dramatic freeing in certain ways. And there's a model in the traditional text of four stages of contacting Nibbana or Nirvana, or we could say the sacred in a way. We could use different language. And on each of these contacts with Nibbana, there are certain um, habitual patterns are worked through or dropped until there's a kind of final liberation. That's the traditional model. And In many ways, we are certainly making use of traditional practice. We're certainly developing more stability of mind, working with concentration as a basis for being able to look carefully at judgments. So we really require that level of uh, stability, some degree of stability, and that continual development of greater concentration and ability to have a settled, stabilized mind is crucial. And we've also, in a way, been, through looking at the judgmental mind, opening up to these three fundamental areas of insight. We've given less attention to impermanence Although we, we have noticed that in some of, the, uh, some of what we have found when we do the dropping down practice, for example, is something which we may have thought to have been really solid, it's going to last, something like anger, as we've seen. Sometimes you stay with it and it opens up to sadness, as we were exploring this morning. So we've looked at that some, but I think we've especially looked at dukkha and not-self in certain ways. Um, Dukkha is usually translated as suffering. I like to translate it as reactivity, which is exactly what we're looking at when we look at the judgmental mind as a form of reactivity. And I like especially the, um, the teaching uh, called the teaching of the two arrows that gives one of the meanings of dukkha. If you look at the ancient text, there are multiple meanings of dukkha and it's a little bit confusing. Uh, Sometimes dukkha is simply the unpleasant. That's a primary uh, reference. That's why we sometimes translate it as suffering. Uh, So the Buddha talks about the the dukkha of birth 
old age, sickness, and death. Right? And there, there are several other meanings of dukkha, but I think the most fundamental one for our practice could be translated as reactivity, not really literally, but in terms of the meaning. And it comes out in this teaching called the teaching of the two arrows. And that teaching goes like this. The Buddha was talking to practice group or practitioners and said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? And he was particularly talking about unpleasant physical experiences, but I want to generalize and talk about the range of unpleasant experiences. So we can have unpleasant physical experiences, obviously. We can have unpleasant emotional and mental experiences, such as uh, judging ourselves, judging others, certain kinds of emotions can be quite unpleasant, fear, you know, certain kinds of anger can feel unpleasant to us. We can have, obviously, difficult, unpleasant interactions with others, and there can be um, social conflict, which can be, can be very unpleasant, of course. And um, everyone, the Buddha said, experiences the unpleasant at times. He said, having an unpleasant experience is like being shot by an arrow. He called that the first arrow. And he said that both a practitioner and a non-practitioner experience that first arrow at times. Everyone is part of being human. What differentiates the non-practitioner from the practitioner is, and the non-practitioner includes us when we're not practicing, just to be clear. <laughs> so uh, the non-practitioner will tend, because of the presence of the first arrow, to shoot a second arrow. And that's a lot what we're looking at when we look at judgment. So the first arrow might be something physically unpleasant and we might, you know, we might have stubbed our toe. It hurts and we blame ourselves for being, you know, awkward, klutzy. People use the word klutzy these days. Yeah, good. I, I mean, I, I haven't used it much since I was a teenager. Okay, very good. And uh, we might judge ourselves, blame others. We might blame a partner who left something that we tripped on. All, all sorts of possibilities. We can also contract physically around the pain and make it worse. Yeah. We can also very obviously shoot a second arrow with emotions or thoughts blame ourselves, blame others, you know, generate negative scenarios. Something happens. This is the way my life will surely develop, right? All sorts of things. Judgments are very good at that, at judging ourselves based on purportedly true negative scenarios. We look at that, right? And then, of course, we can see the second arrow shot in a social context all the time between nations, between groups, and so forth, right? So many conflicts are two sides. We have received pain, we will inflict pain on you, as if that would help. And they do it, groups do it to each other. And so the Buddha said that the practitioner learns not to shoot the second arrow. We could go further into that, but I want to just give that teaching because in many ways we could say that the first arrow is the presence of the unpleasant. We could call that something painful if we mean by pain something more than only physical, emotional pain and so forth. And the second arrow is the reaction to what's there that's unpleasant. In other words, we could call the first arrow the presence of the unpleasant and the second arrow reactivity. And in the Buddha, in talking about the second arrow, I think, was pointing to, I think, the core meaning of dukkha for our practice, in my view, which is reactivity. And so the whole aim of practice is to transform reactivity so we're no longer reacting according to our conditioning, habitual patterns, and so forth. So we can say it quite simply, and that a very ordinary English way to talk about awakening is being non-reactive. We could also talk about 
freedom. We could also talk about love, loving kindness. All of those are non-reactive, right? And so when we explore the judgmental mind, we're looking at one of the main forms of reactivity, main forms of dukkha, I would say. And we can see how it leads to unpleasant experiences for ourselves and others. And then we're also looking at the nature of the self, really. One of the ways, I'm not going to talk much about the teaching of not-self, but one of the ways I like to explicate it is to say that it's partly about being able to be with the flow where there's not much sense of self, where it gets minimized until there's almost none. And the other aspect of it is seeing where the self becomes what I call thick. So I talk about thinning the self and the thick self. Guess what judgmental mind work is? Examining the thick self. When the self feels quite thick, that's why in doing so, we really get very good glimpses of some of the core structures of our self. The places where we might have wounds, have developmental patterns that got fixed or locked in, uh, difficult experiences, or just the momentary challenges of everyday life. And where we get sometimes, have a fixation of some way on where there's a thick sense of self. So the judgmental mind, I think I mentioned it maybe the first night, is a very powerful way to look deeply at the uh, conditioning around self. It's not the only way, but it's a very fundamental way. And so in the judgment work, we can really uh, do some very deep and important work. That's one perspective that's, in a sense, very traditional. The other perspective I want to give is that, in a way, what we're doing with this retreat is we're integrating looking at dukkha, particularly related to a more psychological dimension, also to some extent social dimension, and connecting it with the traditional uh, looking at the basic qualities of human experience. The three characteristics, for example, impermanence, dukkha, uh, not self. And to me, this is something that's really important for us as having um, aspects of Western conditioning. You know, different degrees for all of us, but a lot of us quite fully. And needing to, in a way, see where we're habitual and unconscious on psychological and social levels, as well as looking into the deep human condition that was pointed to by the Buddha. Another way to say that, in my view, that we don't necessarily have good tools from the tradition to look at our psychological conditioning or our social conditioning. We need the integration. So I think sometimes think of we get the best of the Western psychological approaches, the best of looking at social conditioning, social justice concerns, and we connect that with the best, the most valuable aspects of the Buddhist tradition. That's certainly my vision. You know, it's there, you know, one could have questions about that and discussions, but I just wanted, that's some of the basis for what we're doing here. And I think there's a lot of reasons to think that it's important. I certainly experience sometimes teaching our long retreats here that, as I mentioned, I think the other night, that people can be very, very experienced in meditation and not have got to their judgmental mind. You know, that, that, you know, we sometimes call a phenomenon like that spiritual bypassing. Not looking at some of the issues that are there, partly because it's very possible to get deeply concentrated, and I know this from personal experience, get concentrated, have deep experiences, and have stuff that's not dealt with because it doesn't surface because we're concentrated. That's very possible. You know? And so I encounter people and who are very experienced and I say, let's do some judgmental mind work. <laughs> and they actually are typically receptive because they're in a way not doing that makes it, I think it's like a barrier to go deeper if you don't, if you don't work with this stuff. So that's somewhat, of, that's somewhat of the vision here that I want to present. I don't know if that's exactly shared by my co-teachers. Um, I think elements certainly are, and 
Um, I would I would imagine that it is <laughs> to a large extent. But, we, but they can speak for themselves at the right time. <laughs> um, but I wanted to present that because it can give a, a way of understanding what we're doing. We're using a lot of very traditional approaches, but we're also using a lens that is um, informed uh, by both Western psychology and understanding of social conditioning. And we're spending a little bit more on the first. Okay. And so actually the uh, model that I'm presenting, this four-stage model, actually f- was um, really um, developed with uh, being very inspired by a quite similar model uh, that I learned when I went through a two-year uh, psychotherapy intensive training in the Hakomi approach to body-based psychotherapy. Some of you may know that. It's a beautiful system. Incomplete, but very good. <laughs> and there's, there's a similar uh, stage model. And so I want bow to bow to my teachers uh, in, that, in that approach. And the, the, the four-stage model is pretty simple. The, I have the handout. You don't have to look much at it. It's pretty simple. The first stage, well, we basically go from ordinary, habitual experience where judgments are just doing their thing. We go through several stages towards the complete transformation, at least of some, some judgments, some family of judgments. And so the first stage, we start really with our ordinary experience and we develop certain capacities and resources that we need, as it were, for the journey of transformation. And we um, start with those tools. We start to be mindful of judgments. We start to get a sense of how they work. What are my particular ones? What triggers judgment? What are the patterns? And so forth. We get some sense. What are the voices? And we start to go more deeply. We do practices maybe like the dropping down practice. And we start to get a sense of how this works. We start even to get glimpses. You know, is this judgment from my family? You know, is this something that was passed on from the last generation? Often that's the case, right? Who is that voice? That sounds like, that sounds like this person, right? How many of you are noticing voices that sound like someone? Yeah, yeah, very, very common. And so we keep going deeper. At a certain point, we start uh, glimpsing some larger patterns. And we may have a sense of what I'm call- calling, following a number of people, limiting beliefs that are these general beliefs. They're not beliefs in the sense of being consciously held, but they're really almost like unconscious beliefs that are beneath the surface that organize our experience. Maybe something like, I'm not okay. Until we bring it to the surface, we may be driven by that, but not hardly know it. Or it could be, anger is bad. You know, might be that. We might not even know that until, you know, we're 30 years old and a partner says, do you have a thing with anger? Anyway, and so we start getting a glimpse, and in the second stage, we actually have some capacity to be present and know the limiting beliefs as they're happening. In the third stage, we, which, which can take some time, uh, or I should say, can take some time to get there. Um, in the third stage, we are able to transform the limiting beliefs, work through them in a way, and have a different way of approaching, at least in that area. Maybe it might be, I have a different way of being with anger. I've worked through that one, maybe not others. You know, I've worked through anger, but I still, you know, sometimes have a sense I'm inadequate about, you know, in in some way. And so we transform it. Then the fourth stage is that we integrate it in daily life, it gets more stable and we, to a, to a large extent, have worked through that. You know, we may have uh, stressful experiences may take us back to where we were. You know the phrase, under stress, we regress. <laughs> but we've done a lot of work. 
And so that's the model. I'm going to mostly focus on the first two and point towards the third and fourth. And we'll work in guided meditations in the next two days exploring the first three, including the second and third. My hope is that we have some glimpses of two and three, which we then can, which can be helpful. Uh, but if, if we don't, that's fine. Um, that can be helpful, but really to take things further, hopefully connected with what we're doing with the follow-up groups or your own, your own ways of working with that. So in a sense, this is a journey. And as with many journeys, we have to gather resources and supplies at the beginning of the journey. So that you've, most of you have done before you came here. That's why there was a prerequisite, right? That we wanted to have the capacity of mindfulness uh, developed to a significant extent. You know, many of you have developed loving kindness or compassion practice. These are some of the resources that we need for this, for this journey. We need the capacity to have some degree of concentration and stability to be able to go on this journey. And so for a lot of us, it, we may really need to c continue developing those resources. And by the way, there's no rush to get through these four stages. I'll say that a few times tonight, <laughs> and we'll all want to rush, right? Okay, so, but I'll keep on saying it. We'll keep on saying that. Um, you know, when I was going through the uh, Hakomi training, you know, I was told, well, you know, someone may do psychotherapy and take three years to start getting glimpses of stage number two. Okay, just so you're... So it, it can, it's going to be very individual. It takes some time. And there's not a rush. And there's, it's not better to be one, you know, in stage three rather than stage one. Except that we'll suffer less. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we develop concentration. We develop mindfulness. Uh, we, we start doing the inquiry practices. We start doing the uh, dropping down practice. You know, and I had a, let's see, I had a, a quote about, the, let's see if I can find this, about the dropping down practice. This is, uh, one of my students wrote this poem about the dropping down practice. Drop down to what is real. Drop down, see what you feel. Drop down beyond your mind. Drop down, see what you'll find. <laughs> And so we develop those practices. You know, we, we may find that the qigong or yoga or other body practices are very helpful to ground in the body. We also work with the resources of community, of doing retreats, mentors, teachers, peers, teachings, recordings, and so forth. So as we proceed, we start to know that indeed, there are judgments in my mind. We start to be able to identify the judgmental mind. We start to have a sense of the variety of the judgmental mind. Here, here's a cartoon called Rhymes with Orange, which lists the varieties of the judgmental mind. It's called the uh, checklist to feeling pathetic. <laughs> number one, choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them, number one. Number two, Examine your face closely in the mirror. Notice all flaws. <laughs> Number three, relive um, embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. <laughs> and humor, by the way, is helpful here. You know, I mean, I, ho I hope this, I realize this, we're, we're laughing, but it's not funny in some ways, right? So I hope this is okay. Um, but humor is helpful. You know, humor is helpful. Um, the right kind of humor, I should say. You know, humor that's compassionate. Yeah. Number four, make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. 
Number five, disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. (laughs) Number six, resign yourself to believing that from now on this is how you will always feel. Mm. Okay, so (laughs) should I post that? Okay, it's on the web as everything is. So you can, you can Google checklist to feeling pathetic and <laughs> you'll get it. So we, we see the variety of judgments. We start to notice them more. Again, we want to look out for the sense that, uh, that I have so many judgments. It's really when we start looking for the judgmental mind, we may judge ourselves for having judgments. Anyone had that? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, look around, because it's, it's, um, it comes with the territory. Just be aware of that and call it a judgment, you know, and make sure that you see that as just like the others. It's, it comes with sort of with the ring of truth, like, I'm just telling the truth. I'm not really a judgment, right? And so be careful for that one. So we notice the judgments. We know that they're painful, and we may start to develop some compassion, you know, uh, know that they're painful and that we hold them some with compassion. Again, we may start to get a better sense of when the judgmental mind surfaces, how we can tell whether in ourselves or others through tone of voice. It's not just the content of what we're saying. It's the tone of voice. It's the facial expression. It's the uh, context. It's the way the body is. One of the ways that we, another way that we haven't mentioned or I haven't mentioned that you can know it's a judgment is through because it repeats itself a lot. Judgments will typically be very repetitive. And so that's a sign that, you know, there's something there that's sort of driving it. And also, again, the, the, we can see that there are some familiar voices. The judgmental mind, after a certain point, we may sense, oh, that's really, really familiar. And we can start having some compassion and even some humor. This is a story from uh, one of my students who was working with me. And this is a story she told. I told my 10-year-old and 12-year-old grandkids that I was taking a course on being judgmental. She didn't really mean what she said, just on studying judgments, but she said on being judgmental. And I told them, uh, I took them to breakfast and we were sitting at a group table. They started to tease each other and the 10-year-old granddaughter started to pout and put her head on the table and uh, covered her face. I told her to stop being a drama queen. (laughs) Later she told me that by calling her a drama queen, her feelings were hurt, and I flunked my judgmental class. (laughs) When she looked at my face, she smiled and said, now we're even. (laughs) So we notice we, you know, again, in this first stage, the access, we're just noticing more. We notice, you know, the nagging voice, the, uh, we start noticing maybe the flavor of the judgment. We may notice um, whether the voice sounds like a perfectionist, for example. You know, how many of us have perfectionist judges at times? Yeah, very common. So it can be perfectionist. This is actually a list uh, from a very good book by uh, Jay Early and Bonnie Weiss, who are in Marin, who do work with the judgmental mind. They, talk, they use the phrase the inner critic particularly, and they work with uh, internal family systems, the psychological system. And they identify seven types of inner critics. One of them is called the perfectionist. We know that. Another one is called the inner controller. Another is the taskmaster. A fourth is the underminer. The fifth is the destroyer, who just, just will... The sixth is the guilt tripper. And the seventh is the molder into what is socially acceptable. Right? So we may notice those voices, right? And start to get a sense of them. And we could add to that 
the voices we notice that are connected with what you know these days is called implicit bias. The bias we have towards the many uh, social hierarchies. You know, we may be at the top of some, the bottom of others around gender, race, sexual orientation, age, educational level, religion, and so forth, right? There, um, you know, uh, body appearance and so forth, you know, that we may notice that there are inner voices related to those social categories as well. That's very significant when we start noticing that. We may notice that when we judge others, we also take on certain voices that we uh, become the expert. Anyone ever been the expert? <laughs> okay. yeah. We become the moral one. We become the moral decider, <laughs> something like that. We become the boss or the, the uh, again, we could have uh, judging others again through for reasons of the what I was talking about is implicit bias. Um, see one, one I'm trying to think one person I work with um, found that one of her strong voices was what she called the IMA. IMA the impatient moral authority. <laughs> And so, so this, this, again, humor is helpful, can be helpful in looking into this. And you know, we may have also have judgments about uh, our spirituality. We can, we can see that it's connected with being a good meditator and not such a good meditator. You know, um, you know it gets, uh, you know, being in the teacher role, you have to deal with stuff, right? If there's anyone ha of us have any um, judgment issues related to being a teacher? No. <laughs> so, you know, it, you know, it comes with the territory. You know, uh, James Barras likes to tell a story of being a meditator and doing really slow walking meditation, all the while thinking, looking good. <laughs> <laughs> as a meditator, right? <laughs> and the, the self-image and the judgment can get, uh, maybe for, again, for the connection with Yom Kippur, there's a wonderful Jewish story in which, the, you know, it was, I think maybe it was a holiday and the rabbi was overcome with spiritual emotion and he went down on the floor of the synagogue and said, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. And then the cantor, uh, the, uh, the cantor uh, came and uh, also was, just filled with spiritual energy and emotion, went down on the floor, prostrated, said, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the uh, shamas, who is the janitor, came by and was overcome by emotion, went down on the floor and said, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi turned to the cantor and said, look who thinks he's nobody. <laughs> Okay, so there, there's a lot there. And as we get closer, we maybe start doing versions of the dropping down practice. Maybe we start noticing, oh yeah, there's something beneath the judgment. You know, maybe we touch again, um, you know, oh, I'm judging and I touch that. Oh, I have some sadness there when I touch it. You know, I didn't prepare my talk well enough. Let me drop down. Oh, there's some sadness. You know, we start getting a sense of what's beneath the judgment as we look more, more deeply, which is really, really crucial. Actually, really interesting quotation from James Baldwin. He said, I imagine one of the reasons that people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. It's the same understanding. The hate could be said to be a form of judgment, you know, very extreme form. Once once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. So we start to get a sense of, of the pain beneath uh, the surface. You know, so as we do that more, we start to get a sense. We may also be noticing 
here are the, here's what triggers my judgments. We start to get a sense, uh, particularly the regular ones, the chronic ones, they're not just happening randomly, right? That there are certain patterns. I found, you know, there's a very important time for me uh, of working with judgments when I was uh, working with the um, kind of the head of the organization. I was a teacher and this was like the head of the school and I had meetings. I was like uh, um, a faculty, I was like chair of the whole faculty at that point or co-chair I think mostly and we would have meetings every two weeks and I would think that um, in the meetings that this person wasn't listening to me, right? And I would find myself um, uh, becoming judgmental and withdrawing to what I called a comfortable place of distanced moral superiority. <laughs> but I started to see that pattern that for me there was a, like a, I started to get a sense oh, there's something about not being heard not being understood, not having space for my voice, which, which I think a lot of us share some version of that. And, and as I went into that, I could, you know, I did the dropping down practice, started to feel the pain. And it was really interesting because these meetings continued and his behavior continued even if I tried to say something about it, which I wasn't going to say when I was in a judgmental stance. And I was being mentored at the time. It was a very interesting inquiry. But I, I started to get a sense, yeah, there are these deeper patterns and maybe there's something about, maybe, you know, in language that I'm giving today, I would say there's maybe a limiting belief that I won't really be understood or that I won't be heard, right? You know, um, which could be connect with some aspects of biography, personal history and so forth. And that was connected with this. I didn't even make an attempt to, to talk. It was just like painful. I was taken somewhere else, right? But I started to get a glimpse of something beneath the surface, you know, both, you know, by touching the pain and by getting a sense of what triggered, what triggered the judgments, right? And so that takes us really into the place where we're starting to get glimpses of what I'm calling the second stage. We start to get glimpses of what I'm calling uh, limiting beliefs. We start seeing these, these patterns of our minds. There's a, there's a very nice poem by Rilke that brings this out, you know, that we start seeing somewhat of our constructed nature of ourselves and particularly where there's been some wounding or pain. We've developed what are basically these protective um, beliefs that try to remove us from the pain and judging ourselves or others is a way to do that in a kind of peculiar way. This is from the poet Rilke from probably over a hundred years ago. No one lives uh, their life disguised since childhood, haphazardly assembled from voices and fears and little pleasures. We come of age as masks. Our true face never speaks. Somewhere there must be storehouses where all those lives are laid away like suits of armor or old carriages or clothes hanging limply on the walls. Maybe all paths lead there to the repository of unlived things. So we start, yeah, we start finding those masks. You know, they, the masks are connected. We can have a sense of the, um, we can have a sense of the limiting beliefs. They're really mostly unconscious. They form unconsciously. They're masks that often develop at a young age, often out of some challenge where we did the best we could. Um, and they're, uh, they're often organized but by what I'll be calling limiting beliefs or core limiting beliefs, that we have certain core, un mostly unconscious or half-conscious beliefs which organize things. And in psychological work, they're called by different names. Some uh, psychologists call these schemas or frames, but there's some way that we organize experience and that when we can uh, approach them, when we can approach them and uh, start to be mindful of them and see them, it's the, the uh, transformative process starts to really accelerate in a certain way. And 
we may start having glimpses or a sense of things. And so they can be, they can be very, very simple. Um, you know, if I was uh, in a family in which there was a divorce at age five or age eight or age 10, I may have a unconscious belief, if I get close to people, they will leave me, which may surface when we're 30, 40 years old in relationships, right? That's an example of a limiting belief connected with what we might call abandonment, right? I may have a limiting belief about myself. I may have a limiting belief about my relationships. I may have a limiting belief about the world, right? And here's one, there was kind of a, well, there's a power. Um, a lot of the cartoons in Peanuts with Charlie Brown and Lucy are about limiting beliefs. This is, this is uh, Lucy, um, is the, there's a whole series of cartoons in which Lucy is a psychiatrist and she makes diagnoses under the sign the doctor is in. And there's a small booth and uh, Charlie Brown is her patient. And she tells Charlie Brown, you know what your problem is Charlie Brown? The problem with you is that you're you. Charlie Brown asks, well, what in the world can I do about that? <laughs> and Lucy says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. <laughs> right, so that would be an example, you know, we could say more, you know, less humorously, the core belief could be, I'm not okay. I'm flawed as I am, or this aspect of me is not okay. Uh, I'm inadequate. Uh, one person I worked with had the limiting belief that could we trace back to childhood very easily that um, I'm just going to mess up in what I do. And he had that appear every morning in his life. And not surprisingly, he was at one point diagnosed with depression. And I, uh, I work, I, I've actually uh, worked with him for, 20, for almost 20 years. And he, we worked through a lot of this in a few years. Um, where he, where maybe I'll tell his story a little bit you know, near the end. So we can have those kind of limiting beliefs about ourselves. I'm not okay because of this, because of my educational level, my appearance, could be even about my gender, race, sexual orientation. Again, that's where the social and the psychological tend to mix together. We can have core beliefs about relationships. My needs will not be met. Or I can't ask for my needs to be met. You know, one person I know had the core belief who I've worked with, um, if something bad happens in my family, it's my fault. Been with this person for 60 years. Right? Very high functioning person. Very successful. Happy family, more or less. You know? But that limiting beliefs right there. So this, you know, these limiting beliefs are with uh, normally functioning people. Meaning, I s you seem to be normally functioning. Are we normally functioning? Okay. So, um, so they can be about uh, relationships. I'm not safe on my own. Um, others, like maybe like my, my one that I was finding, others won't really listen to me or I won't be understood. Something like that. You know? And the limiting beliefs develop because of particular occurrences in childhood and they're actually smart. They are actually, they're protective and smart in their origins. You know? And of course, they're pretty valuable maybe at age five or age seven when we're still using them at age 30 or 40 or 50, less functional, right? And so that's why we're here, right? That's because we can, we can work with them. They could be also about the world. We could say the world is not safe. The world is dangerous, you know? Or we may say other people should be like me and if not, they're bad. It's kind of stark, aren't they? <laughs> Anyone recognize any of these? 
Yeah. And so another one would be, um, if you work hard, you'll succeed, which might not recognize the barriers for some people and so forth. Um, another one might be, I don't really belong. And I, sh- I should say also that we also internalize supportive beliefs in all these directions. I'm mentioning the limiting beliefs, which are typically connected with the judgmental mind. We also may have supportive beliefs like, I'm okay, or my needs will be met, or I can depend on my parents, or I can depend, depend or the world feels safe to me. Right? So there can be, we, and most of us have a mix of the limiting beliefs that are the limiting beliefs, and what I'm calling more supportive beliefs, okay? So at a certain point, we start to get uh, glimpses of something that might be organizing many of the judgments that we've been studying. We start to get glimpses of these um, limiting beliefs. We start to say, do I, you know, if I notice myself, if I study my judgments a lot, and I notice that I have a lot of judgments, that person's angry, bad, right? and I find myself doing that a lot, I might start to, again, someone else might tell me, do you have a thing about anger? And I may start to see, yeah, there's something there. And that may take me a little more deeply. I might say, oh yeah, I, I think I really think anger's bad. That's connecting with the limiting belief. You know? And so at a certain point, we start to get in the territory of limiting belief we know it more cognitively, and we can also start to be aware when it's present, when it's dominating, when the limiting belief comes. You know, when I've just had maybe, I don't know, a, um, a job evaluation that I didn't like, and I go into some old pattern, right? And when we've done this work, we start to say, okay, I know what's happening, and that fog is descending on me. I know that. And then, things change because we can use the tools. We can say, you know, do I want to go into that very familiar fog? Or how about compassion? How about compassion, being with beauty, doing the Brahma Vihara, listening to the recordings from the judgment retreat? (laughs) And so forth. So things start changing. Once we see and get a sense of limiting beliefs, things change. Still can be hard, still takes time, but things have shifted. And that's, you know, and then we start to be able to have a sense of how they might be transformed. And I'm going to be briefer here, and in fact, quite, quite brief, that we might have a sense of, we might start hanging out if I have a limiting belief about anger, and be with the anger. I might get to know it and say, you know, this isn't so bad, I can handle it, right? And we might get really interested in it you know, and um, explore it and maybe take some tentative steps towards even being able to express anger, which probably was very hard before that, maybe with help of psychologists or teachers or friends or partners. We, we start exploring. At a certain point, we may have done a certain amount of work and we may have a sense that I have a new way to organize that part of my life and it's maybe around anger is a normal part of human experience. And that starts to substitute for the limiting belief. I call that a transform belief. And that starts to organize our experience more. That may be a little bit easier than some of the ones like I don't feel adequate, right? Those can be a little deeper, take a little more nuanced work. But the way it works is similar to what the way I mentioned with, with anger. We get a glimpse of it, which can take quite some time, right? It may take me 30 years to really have that insight about anger and take certain um, situations. And so I may develop a transformed belief. I may just find that I can go to a different place. It's not necessarily, the transformed belief isn't necessarily the logical opposite. And so the person who woke up every morning saying, I'm going to mess up today, we worked more with really developing the sense of inner joy. So this was more like Eve's uh, presentation on the Brahma Vihara, that, that uh, he was able to go to beautiful states and say, and, you know, and, really, and really say this is, uh, you know, 
this is a big part of who I am. I'm joyful. And he was took James Barris's Awakening Joy class. And what we would do, what he would do, he did a lot of practices. He, he loved that somatic practice, uh, that he would love to do his work, you know, just being with his posture. You know. But we'd also do the dropping down and do practices like um, uh, when the I'm going to mess up today would appear, we would invoke, he would invoke joy and go to joy. And so it's not always a logical opposite. For him, it was more like, I'm a joyful person, we could say, was the, how that got transformed. Another person I worked with found after some inquiry that there was a uh, limiting belief. This is more from being an adult. I can't be happy as a divorced woman. Very obviously roots in social conditioning, right? I can't be happy as a divorced woman causing a lot of suffering, you could imagine. And we worked with that, and eventually her, um, her transformed belief wasn't the logical opposite. It wasn't like being a divorced woman is just fine, thank you. <laughs> it was more her, the, what she came up with, and because we work intuitively with this, and we'll do some of this in guided practice. Hers was, I am a kind, wise being. And so in this third stage, we try to have a sense, a more intuitive sense, not so much thinking it out, of what the transformation is about. And you can't rush it. You have to wait till it's there. And then once that's there, then we ask, what supports that transformed belief getting stronger? And we would draw up a list of three or four activities, you know, maybe people to hang around, meditative practices, what's gonna help that get stronger? And that's the curriculum for the next period of time. You know, so one, you know, we, we work with, we'll work with this with a guided meditation, start to get a glimpse of the transformed belief and then find activities, meditations, ways of being, maybe a list of three, four, five that support that. And this comes from oneself that let it get stronger and then just do them. And that's it. Pretty, you know, pretty simple and obvious. So a little bit less, once you get to this stage, a little bit less, less detail. And then of course, the much of what we do with the first, you know, three steps, of course, where I'm emphasizing more how we do that in retreat or in meditation or in a protected environment, maybe like working with a mentor, but eventually uh, we bring it out into our everyday lives where we, where we integrate it and stabilize it. And in fact, we're doing that all the time. You know, the model is a simplification. You know, and it's also not necessarily, I'm not necessarily saying that, this, that our own transformation will be linear like this. It's a model that aims to give a little bit of perspective. And we, we may develop a little differently than one, two, three, four. It's not, you know, it's a model, right? So it's, it has its uh, limits and it's hopefully its benefits. So I think we can, we can see the possibilities of this journey. We can see how it fits with the larger journey of awakening. And I think we can see how there is actually an intelligible sequence of practice and development that lets us go particularly into the roots of these more, um, what, uh, chronic or um, old or persistent judgments. And they can be transformed. Once again, it's one of the findings of um, <coughs> the neurosciences is that we can have repeated the same judgment two million times, but because of neuroplasticity, voila, <laughs> because of neuroplasticity, um, we can actually shift and actually surprisingly quickly. That's the truth, right? And so this is pointing towards a way that even if we feel, oh God, this is just so old and so forth, it's actually possible to shift with the right practices and support. And that's what we're trying to offer here as best we can. 
So let me just finish with um, maybe a, a poem. This is from the Sufi poet Hafiz. Some of you know. It's called, um, it's from a poem in a treehouse. Light will someday split you open. Even if your life now is a cage. For a divine seed, the crown of destiny is hidden and sown on an ancient fertile plain you hold the title to. Love will surely burst you wide open into an unfettered blooming new galaxy even if your mind is now a spoiled mule. A life-giving radiance will come. Look again within yourself, for I know you were, you were once the elegant host to all the marvels of creation. Let's just sit a little little while now together. Again, thank you for your, your very kind attention. And we'll come back again at nine for the sitting, followed by the chanting together. And if you haven't been there, take a chance. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.